Thanks for tuning into season four of Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. For those of you that are new to the pod, we explore the world of product marketing through the lens of the women who run it at some of the fastest growing technology companies in the world. This season kicks off with Natala Menezes, an inspiring product marketing leader at Grammarly. She shares her insights on the steps to develop and execute a successful product launch, red flags to watch out for along the way, and how PMMs can be more involved in the product lifecycle. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. That's Clue with a K, the leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers who drive revenue for their business. Clue helps you collect, curate, and distribute competitive insights to enable sales and revenue teams to win more deals. Share real-time insights across your organization with Clue's dynamic battle cards, delivered everywhere your sales reps live, and allowing them to contribute insights from the field. It's competitive strategy as a key lever of revenue. Elevate your role and outmaneuver, outplay, and outmatch the competition with Clue. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm here today with Natala Menezes, the Global Head of Product Marketing at Grammarly. Natala has a storied career spanning strategic partnerships, product management, and product marketing across great companies like Google, Microsoft, Salesforce, and more. Can't wait to have our conversation today. Natala, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here, Mary. Well, so excited. You are actually the kickoff for season four. And this season, we have a brand new question. And the kickoff question is, what inspires you? It's a really great question. I think working in technology and working in product marketing, we're always thinking about how things work. And so for me, I often find that I need to find inspiration outside of sort of that mechanical industry that I work in. And so for me, it really is art. And I really like large scale art. One of the things I do with my team is we do once or twice a year, we'll just go to a museum and sort of like play like a scavenger hunt, but just as a way of like thinking differently. And I find that for me, that's the most effective way to bring, one of the most effective ways I should say, to bring newness and different thinking to the work that I do every day. And so some of the artists that I really love are like Richard Serra, who does these huge like 20 foot metal sculptures. There's one in Seattle in the Olympic Sculpture Park that I just really love because it's such a total experience the Rothko Chapel in Houston, where everything is dark and black. And it's just a completely different way or approach of thinking about religion and what it means to have a spiritual relationship. And for me, those types of things just transform how I think about everyday things. And I find them really inspiring. Wow. Well, I'm really inspired by this whole commentary. I'm going to have to check those out. Thank you for sharing that. And what a great way to get out of the box thinking, have a fun activity with your teammates. I love that. Are there any museums locally? I know you're from San Francisco as well. Mm -hmm. Any museums that you particularly like checking out with your team? My default is always the SF MoMA, in part because it has such a great modern art. There's two floors of modern art, and it's, I think, the scale is really massive. But then I try to split. I actually do one at MoMA, which is walking distance from our office, and then we do the De Young, which oftentimes will have, like, an exhibit which is fashion-oriented, which I think is also really fun. That's so cool. I think I saw the Oscar de la Renta show there. Yes. Oh, those are so great. Yeah. 
so fun. Well, I love to hear more about your role at Grammarly. I also must say I'm such a fan of Grammarly. In fact, so much so that I actually have everyone on my team buy Grammarly every year and I tell them not to send me anything to proof until they've run it through Grammarly. I don't even <laughs> want to see it. It's, it's, Grammarly is my copy editor. So I am such a fan. I'd love to hear about your role, the scope, the company. Tell us more about it for those that don't know. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm so excited to hear that you and your team are Grammarly users. That is exactly why we do what we do every day. So Grammarly, we're a later stage startup. We're still a private company. We have a very specific mission, which is to improve lives by improving communication. And we do that by leveraging AI and natural language tools to help people achieve their communication goals. And, you know, sometimes if you're a student, that might be making sure that the paper that you're submitting is submitted in the best form and quality. We have plagiarism checking. It really helps them achieve the goals that they have within their academic curriculum. I also think just like personally, you know, sometimes you have emails that are harder to write, like to a sibling or a friend for whatever reason, and writing it through Grammarly, you can find out the tone and get feedback to help you really achieve those communication goals. And obviously then also within organizations. So I lead the product marketing organization. We're about, I think now we're like 18 people and we really sit at that intersection between product and marketing. So figuring out how do we go to market, taking new products to market, but then also that feedback loop into the product organization to really understand who our customers are, how they're experiencing Grammarly and how we can make sure they're getting the most value from the product that we offer. My team is sort of structured around our core lines of business. So consumers, individuals like you who use Grammarly, businesses, B2B, so both within education institutions, as well as just, you know, enterprise organizations. And then our newest line of business is really oriented around third-party use of Grammarly. So integrating Grammarly into existing applications, and that's really focused around developers. We're lucky to have millions of customers who use our products every day and give us tons of feedback on ways in which we can improve. And we're also just, I think, a really innovative company thinking about what the future of communication might look like. And just from hearing you talk about it, it sounds like such a cool intersection of your experience being product management, strategic partnerships, now product marketing, all of those different pieces seem to come into play with your portfolio. That's really cool. Yeah, it's definitely, I think having that combination of consumer and how do you make impactful moments for individuals versus organizations has been really interesting. I have much fewer conversations around security with individuals, but then we end up talking about privacy, which is how we manage individual data. That's so cool. Yeah, the B2C, B2B side. So cool. Same, same, but different. Got <laughs> Very different. <laughs> Well, great. Well, I know you have many areas of expertise, but one of the areas we wanted to talk about today was one of my personal favorites too, product launches. And for those of you listening, Natala has done a couple of AMAs. So we'll have those posted in the show notes that help to go even deeper to some of these topics. But one question I wanted to start off with regarding product launches is how do you develop a buyer persona for a new product launch? What goes into your thinking with that? 
So for me, I really start first with who the target customer is and what we believe that ideal customer profile to look like. And part of that is just having conversations with customers, but really deeply understanding what is their path to purchase? What's the budgeting process? What's the competitive landscape? And then how can we deliver something that's differentiated and valuable to that customer? So when I think about personas, we often really focus on the buyer who's making the decision, but I actually think it's really useful to think about the ecosystem around that individual or that decision maker, because oftentimes those influencers, the end users, the person in IT are actually very impactful on the decision-making process. And so in my experience, I've typically tried to differentiate within the persona model who the end user is, who the buyer is, and then who's going to be the champion or the influencer in the organization. And that really influences how we think about go-to-market and how we think about messaging. That's really interesting. And do you find that it's similar across the launches that you're doing? Are you able to say, oh, okay, you know, this product had this champion and this buyer and we're able to kind of repeat it? Or do you find that it's a new process and new investigation of who that ultimate buyer is every time you're launching something? I think what we have found that obviously there's very different go-to-market motion between consumer and B2B, and then also within developer. What we found, I think most interestingly in B2B is just the different organizations and how they're buying. So departments really like a sales team might buy Grammarly, which is different than how a customer service team or a marketing team might buy it. And so thinking about how do we actually get bigger deals, potentially a wall-to-wall deal, changes the way in which we might think about that go-to-market. I think there's also, it's really important to differentiate, are you launching a feature enhancement or are you launching a big product innovation? The type of rigor that you want to put into like a new product launch, that's going to be a new SKU or something new that you're selling, or potentially a shift in the way in which you're going to market. I think you need to have more rigor for that and rethink that path to purchase because oftentimes it will shift with the innovation that you're bringing. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And relatedly, what would you say are some of the steps that you use to develop that repeatable and scalable launch discipline? So you're not having to reinvent the wheel every single time if it's a feature or even a new product. I often try to break it into two different parts. One is the leadership team, like who's going to make the decisions on the go, no go criteria. And then the other is that sort of like working team who's actually going to do the work to actually get the launch to actually happen. The reason why I try to differentiate those is that they actually solve for different problems and have different check-in points. You know, a working team will probably meet on a weekly basis and they're designing and crafting what the product is, what they're taking to market, how they're going to execute all of the pieces in that bill of materials. But that leadership team is the one who holds everyone accountable, but also make sure that the organization at a higher level understands what's happening, when it's happening, and why it's happening. And I think oftentimes when we think about launching, we don't make those two differentiations. It's just like one team. But by separating them out, I think you're able to get more momentum within an organization, but also have clearer lines of decision making. That's really great. And to clarify, that is for your internal leadership team and internal working team. And that's how you guys kind of develop that rigor. Yes, absolutely. 
That's great. And how do you evolve that? So I've been reading this book called Think Again by Adam Grant, which is a great book. He's an organizational psychologist, and he has this kind of way of approaching things that best practices kind of get stale. And best practices are something that, you know, often we rely on too heavily. So he brings up this concept of better practices in this book. I'm just curious if you evolve those best practices or that rigor, those standards over time and how you guys kind of think through that how you evaluate what worked and what didn't and how you maybe change it for the future. It's so interesting. We have a webinar with Adam Grant in a couple of weeks and I'm feeling like I need to read this book because- Oh, you should. It's great. Just do it on Audible. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I definitely will because I'm a big checklist manifesto person. So Atul Gawande wrote a book about basically emergency rooms and how they were inefficient because they didn't run a playbook in the emergency room and they didn't checklist to make sure they were doing the same things over and over again. And so my team tends to run in a pretty framework driven way. And this question of flexibility and thinking about redoing it is really interesting to me. Here's how I approach it. We have a launch playbook and that launch playbook has multiple tiers for how we think about launches. Like not every launch should get a strategic level of investment. It's not going to get 40 or 50 PR placements and it's not going to have executive speaking on the morning news shows or something like that. And so you want to scale your investment for what you're actually shipping and the impact that you want to have. I personally have found that by having a clear framework and a bill of materials that you can customize for the launch gets people to start doing the aspects of launching really fast. And that momentum that you get early on to clearly define what we're doing and why helps the whole process go forward more systematically. To some extent, I think the creativity in a launch is potentially the launch experience, the messaging, the narrative, and being differentiated. But many aspects of launches are somewhat routine. Is the product actually ready? Does it work as expected? Do we have the right materials? Have we trained the sales organization? Have we trained our internal organization? Is our customer support team up and ready and understanding what the changes are going to be? The more prepared I find that you can be for launch day, which is just this like moment in time where you flip the switch and then everything changes after that because you learn how the product actually works when it's actually in the wild. I tend to find that that rigor helps us be more consistent. And in particular, it helps us set expectations with our partner teams. And we can have a conversation and say, well, actually, this is a tier one strategic launch or this is a tier four launch. And so we're going to scale what we do differently. And here's how that might look like. Helps us just have more consistent conversations but it doesn't take away from the creativity. And I might now need to rethink part of that as I think about Adam Grant a little bit more. Yeah. Thanks for answering that. And I had an eye-opening moment reading it too, because as a product marketer as well, I'm so driven by frameworks and checklists. And it's kind of like, I think how you were describing this too, it's like frameworks plus flexibility, but the frameworks and those best practices actually enable you to have those consistent conversations, but then make changes when you do see that the buyer persona is different or that you have a different go-to-market plan, but having some kind of framework and not just winging it every time, not rethinking everything, that would be way too time-consuming and not practical. So it's like, this helps you have like creativity within boundaries or something. That's what I would offer that. I like that. I definitely, you know, when we have discussions on my team, I often raise the question of how could we flip it? What's the craziest and wildest thing that we could do as part of this launch motion and defend why we're not doing that? Hmm. I do think those frameworks can sometimes become a little bit too structured. And it's like, we're just checking the boxes on the, you know, we've got our three benefits and they've got three proof points, but is it meaningful? Is it impactful? And I think the best way in some ways to test that is to put it in front of customers and get their feedback. 
Definitely. I love the idea you just shared about coming up with the wild and crazy ideas and defending why we're not doing it. You know, why aren't we having a Super Bowl commercial or (laughs) sometimes budgets are a concern, of course, but I think that makes a lot of sense. That's a really cool practice. So I would love to also talk about on the product launch topic, what are some challenges or red flags that you see? And if you want to throw in a launch fail story, those are always my favorite too. (laughs) So what are some some challenges or things that you see and, Ooh, we maybe need to change the date on this or the deadline isn't going to be hit or stakeholders are great, or this isn't the right product for our customers. What are some things that you check in along the way? The place where I've seen product launches go off the rails the most is when there's not clear entry and exit criteria for the different steps in the process. If there's ambiguity, particularly between engineering, product, and marketing, what actually done looks like and good looks like, that is probably the place where you tend to have the most chaos in a launch. And I don't know that I would consider it a launch fail, but I can remember launching a product, our contextual advertising platform at Microsoft, and we were deep into launching this product and we were really excited it was going to be a game changer, but we did an inventory analysis of the contextual advertising that we actually had available to us, like what kind of inventory we had. And it turned out that of our like 40 verticals, we only really had deep coverage in four to five of them. And we were planning to do a broad initiative with our sales organization to get everyone selling contextual ads. And when you looked at the data, it was really obvious that we actually wouldn't get traction in most of our verticals because we just didn't have the depth of inventory for what we had planned for launch. We recalibrated our entire sales incentive program so that we only incentivized salespeople where there was inventory. And we gave like a double bonus type of spiff. And then for everyone else, we kind of gave them a buy. And we said, this isn't your priority. Keep selling what you're used to selling. We're just going to focus on these three to five verticals. And it turned a launch from being, I think, a high friction point within the sales organization where they would be selling something where they couldn't deliver to being really focused and prioritized. And we actually built a lot more trust with the sales organization through that process. They liked the spiffs as well, but they liked that we had thought through what the sales experience would actually look like. It happened late in the process. It's something that I now think more about of like, for us to deliver on this launch, what does it actually look like from an end user perspective? But that is definitely, I think, those quick calibrations. And that's where having a really well-formed leadership team that you can go to quickly and be like, hey, we have this insight, we need to take action on it. Here's what we propose and getting a sign off and investment was very useful. What a great example. And it's a launch fail saved. You saved the <laughs> data. That's so amazing. Because I can just imagine 36 other verticals, those salespeople being so irate once their customers actually test it out in real life and say, this isn't really working for me. But because you guys went that extra mile, actually looked at it, made sure that it was the right fit. It really works. So that's great. Maybe that's a new genre instead of just launch fails. How did you avoid a <laughs> launch fail? That's awesome. Well, I'm sure we could talk about product launches the whole time but I would love to get your opinion on product marketing influencing the product development lifecycle, which I know is a really sticky point for a lot of product marketers out there. So I guess just to kick off this topic, which you've also done an AMA on, how can PMM be more involved in the product development lifecycle? I tell my team this all the time. 
the most important thing that we can do as product marketers is show up, be awesome, and speak in the language of our customers and do that with data, quotes, research. That is the value add differentiator that product marketing brings. We're actually on the front line to some extent with sales or through the research that we do, and we should know our customers best. And bringing that to the table and adding that context is, I think, the place where product marketing really shines. I say show up and be awesome because I think a lot of times what I've observed is people just hold back from going into those product meetings or from being asked to attend, not knowing what they need to deliver in the moment or how to participate. And a lot of times it's just about showing up and then listening and then being awesome by having the data and insights from your customers. Of course, you also have to deliver like the core essentials of product marketing, like knowing your positioning, knowing the product. But I really think showing up and being awesome is the first step. I would love to just make that into a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. That's a new brand right there. And yeah, a lot of, I think it's crossing that chasm of being intimidated to even show up to the meetings and understanding, you know, what is talked about, how things are working, understanding the culture of the organization you're working at. And if you don't feel comfortable speaking up right away, understand what they need, then the next time show up and be awesome with that data point or those customer quotes, as you mentioned, or anything that can actually help them. So that is really awesome advice and very simple, actionable, but can kind of get people off their seat. You have to be in the product meetings in order to make a difference. It's kind of a no-brainer, but sometimes it's hard to even make that first step. So I love that. Yeah. And I think the second part of it, I should say, is you have to raise your hand. So Mm -hmm. when you're in those meetings, they're like, does anyone know this thing about this customer? Like, I have an insight. I can bring more insights. I'll come back at the next meeting with that insight. And that that's the kind of being awesome part. I think it's the delivery and consistency. Yeah, definitely. And on this show, Women in Product Marketing, we've talked a lot about how women are sometimes a little bit more intimidated, even when they are the area expert at a certain topic, because these meetings we're in sometimes are 50 people and you don't want to say the wrong thing. So that's a great way to kind of approach it. If you want a little more time to prepare to say, hey, I don't have the data right in front of me, but I'd love to share the insights or follow up in the next meeting to get that airtime, but to just say something. And yeah, I tell my team that too, sometimes just Ask a really smart question. You don't even share something that is the data point. It's just make sure everyone knows you're there. Everyone's screen. I'm talking about, you know, in a virtual world. So of course, off screen, 50 people, you want to make sure they know that pricing is there, not just, you know, a name on have your moment where you actually make sure that you have showed up and people understand that. That's really great. Also, how do you manage product teams that are poor at releases? So, you know, for big changes, minor changes, I've worked with a lot of product managers over the years, and I can tell you personally, you know, some of them are great at managing releases and some are not. So what what would your advice be for those that need extra help or just some more challenging in, in that regard? I think it really comes down to two things. One is building trust because the reality is that things just go off the rails for many reasons. And when you have a trusted relationship, you're going to learn about it earlier in the process and be part of how you solve it. And I think that part of the relationship between a product manager and a product marketing manager is so critical because sometimes things will ship early, sometimes they'll ship late. But if you have trust, you're more likely to get the heads up and also understand the dependencies, which helps to identify where things might actually be going off the rails. I think the other thing that's really important for product marketers to do is to share the context of all of the parts that are impacted. 
One thing that I think makes product managers very successful is a little bit of tunnel vision on just shipping something or building something. And they oftentimes don't see the bigger picture that there's like 30 other people in the marketing organization, not just you, the product marketer, who are writing the copy, who are preparing the web pages, who are doing the marketing campaigns that will drive people to the new product. And so showcasing what the entire spectrum of work looks like and the dependencies outside of engineering as part of what it actually means to ship and launch, I think are really critical. I'll also just say that we oftentimes think about launches as like the endpoint, And I try to really reinforce my team that the launch is the midpoint. It's sort of like when you climb a mountain and you get to the summit. When you actually get to the summit, you have the entire way to go back down. And that is oftentimes the hardest part. And I think that's very true with launches as well. That's so important. And Natala has a mountain mural behind her. So every day you can look at that. The launch is just the midpoint, people. You have to go. <laughs> I love that. Yes, very um, much so. So this is a little bit related to your show up and be awesome, but how do you add value to a product team that isn't used to working with product marketing? So what are some examples of that be awesome part in addition to some of the customer insights you mentioned? You know, I think one of the key things is making sure that it's clear to everyone that you're working towards the same endpoint, that you're on the same team. I think that's, you know, another part, maybe a, a flavor of just showing up and being awesome. You're showing up because you care about everyone winning together and communicating that and reinforcing that with the goals that you're driving towards, I think is really useful. The other thing I think is helping people understand what PMM delivers, which is that voice of the customer, the compelling messaging positioning, the launch plans, the go-to-market, bringing people together, the market understanding and the perspective on where the opportunity is. I also think there's this aspect of, you know, product managers are often very visionary. They're trying to build a future state world. Product marketing actually builds the bridge to get there and lays down the path. And so articulating, okay, that's great. We want to get to this future state where like Everyone is using AI to write everything that they do, and it's going to be amazing. And like they're coached through that entire process. Today, people are writing emails and Slack messages, and it looks like this. So here's what the steps might look like for where we want to get to. And articulating that actual way in which you get to that endpoint is, I think, another way in which product marketing differentiates. That's so helpful and so interesting. You know, I think we talk a lot in the PMM world about narratives and storytelling, but that's such a good way to connect the dots between PMM and PM is, you know, they're here telling everyone to, or hoping everyone can make this leap with the product, but you can't really run before you start crawling there on the <laughs> product and the, you know, reception by the market. So just making sure that that has clear milestones or stepping stones in order to get there and telling that story. I love that. That's really a great takeaway. And then just to put a cherry on top of this conversation around influencing product development, how would you say product marketing can more effectively influence really specific things like the product market or the product roadmap priorities and just the timeline in general? So when I think about that priorities component, it's about having clarity on what you're trying to get done, which is the goal, the big picture, the vision, the place that you're trying to get to, and then the why. But then as product marketers, being able to articulate the trade-offs that customers are making and understand the trade-offs, how that might actually impact what goes into the roadmap prioritization process. So oftentimes what I've seen is 
product managers are making technical decisions. Oh, it's really hard to execute X, Y, and Z. So we should deliver that later. And product marketing can bring the point of view of like, actually, that's the most critical feature for customers to understand the benefit of what we're doing. And so I actually think that should be the number one priority and all these other smaller things might be the things to cut. And representing that to the product manager, I think is a, another way of really being influential on the product roadmap and the timeline and sort of let prioritization process. Now, feature prioritization is definitely managed and owned by product management, but that is where the voice of the customer has a huge impact and product marketing can represent that customer. That's such a good way to approach it too. And then you're bringing data in, you're showing this customer research that shows that this is the most important thing and that's how you can help them prioritize. That's really clever. Love it. Well, great. Well, I can't believe it, but it's already time for our rapid fire questions. So starting off, I just wanted to understand who have been some of your strongest mentors, either product marketing or just in your career? I feel like I've been really lucky to have a lot of great managers and mentors, but there are two people that really stand out for me. And I know this because I quote them all the time. The first is a guy, David Jakubowski, that I worked for at Microsoft. I actually worked for him twice. I also worked for him at a startup called AK. And he really drilled into me my first marketing framework or product management framework at the time, which is there are three things you always need. The timeline, or as he called it, the tube. And the timeline isn't so much about holding people accountable to specific dates because dates do change, but it's about communicating clearly within the organization what's happening when and what the sequence is. He then told into me the concept of a plan for a plan. And he would say, if you ask people for a plan, it's very complicated. It feels very heavy for them to execute. But if you ask for a plan for a plan, just the high level, what are the components of the piece is going to be? It's much easier for someone to deliver. And that shift in my thinking of like, I need the plan versus a plan for a plan was a big shift in just cross team collaboration and execution. And then the last thing is to always know your metrics, know what you're going to be accountable at the end of the process, know what you're working towards and what you're trying to change. The other person that was really influential for me was Sarah Franklin, who's now the CMO at Salesforce. She just is incredibly attentive to every single detail and the precision and the knowledge that every word matters. Like we would be doing on a track, working on a top track for a keynote, and she would make sure that the same word was repeated multiple times and no variations because repetition is so key for people to understanding and hearing the key messages. The other other thing is just, you know, working with an executive, I learned the benefit of like this, we used to call it a hashtag, no surprises, but just the pre-briefings, making sure they're informed that they know the key elements. Sometimes it can feel like sharing with an executive. They're so busy. You don't want to give them too much information, but I really learned the benefit of like the detailed update email to keep the momentum and to keep the awareness and visibility. Wow. I love that. Thanks for the takeaways that they've shared with you too. Lots of more t-shirt slogans on there. <laughs> <and> surprises. <laughs> Those are wonderful. And then it sounds like you met both of them via jobs that you had. You got the opportunity to work with them and then have kept in touch. Yes, absolutely. I mean, David's been such an influential part of my career. And Sarah, you know, my last job before I came to Grimley was at Salesforce and she's definitely someone that I continue to look to for advice. That's so wonderful. It's probably hard to boil down, but what is one thing that has been most important to growing your career? 
I think it's really been taking chances, you know, making the shift from product management to product marketing, just trying different things. They haven't always worked, but it gives me much more of a composite way of looking at problem solving. And it's also just led me into situations like I would never have ended up at Google if I hadn't taken a chance and just like pitched myself for a random job. And it's led to some of the best experiences that I've had. That's awesome. Take a risk. Love it. It's a little scary, but it seems like it's worked out for you. <laughs> it's definitely can be scary. <laughs> Networking, love it or hate it. Do you do it? What are your thoughts? I feel like pre-pandemic me was very big on networking. I'm just like a natural connector. I love people. I love figuring out like, oh, you should meet or talk to this person. You would get along. Post-pandemic, I'm much more in my little bubble. And it's really something I think about a bit because we're recruiting, we're hiring so many people at Grammarly. And so I've had to just like, I've been a lot more time lately reaching out to people, holding office hours, just talking about the function of product marketing. And I've and doing things like this, like I really have enjoyed just the connections that I've made through Sharebird and other services. It's been really great. And are you hiring right now? We are hiring. We have <laughs> lots of roles open. Our product engineering teams are hiring aggressively. In product marketing, we're looking for a B2B lead as well as a trust and AI lead are two big roles that I'm hiring for. And if anyone is interested, please reach out to me. I would love to talk to you. That's awesome. Those sound very exciting too. All right. So just a couple more questions for a rapid fire. Why product marketing? I really love being at the intersection of product and marketing. And I think it's because I'm very curious. I want to see how things work. I left product management because I really didn't want to manage engineers anymore. But I love being close to the product and understanding the functionality. But the other thing is that I just love telling stories and helping to bring to life the inspiration in a product and make it meaningful. Like you can build an amazing product, but if no one knows about it or knows how to use it effectively, it's not actually that useful. That is really inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. And just last question, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you about these roles or just to say hi? And LinkedIn has become my like go-to resource for everything. I've been sort of surprised, but it's probably my number one social network these days. <laughs> Me too. That's awesome. Well, Natal, it was so wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for all the AMAs that you've done. Thanks for being on the show. And just thanks for everything you do. Really wonderful having you on Women in Product Marketing. Thank you, Mary. It was an absolute delight to chat with you. Thank you so much. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. That's Clue with a K, the leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers who drive revenue for their business. This show is produced by Sharebird, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to Sharebird.com. We'll also link Natala's AMA in the show notes.